0: Um, let's flip to uh, Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7, beginning verse 8, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, fifth month, which was not in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. This morning we are continuing our study of Ezra and Nehemiah, and as you can tell by the image on the screen and the title of the series, we are examining a construction motif. That appears throughout these two books. Just as way of reminder, Ezra and Nehemiah retell the story of three different group of exiles that returned to Jerusalem with the expressed intent of rebuilding something. In Ezra chapter 1 through chapter 6, we read about the first group that returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, and they came back to rebuild the temple. And then beginning in Ezra chapter 7 and running through the end of that book, we read about the second group of exiles who return, and they return under the leadership of Ezra, and they do so with, the purpose of, with Ezra's purpose of rebuilding the Jewish covenant community by reinstating a commitment to Mosaic law. And then you can get to the book of Nehemiah, and that tells of the third return. The third group that returns, returns under the leadership of Nehemiah, and they go back for the expressed purpose of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And so this rebuilding idea is all throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This morning, we're going to turn our attention to that second group of exiles. We're going to start in Ezra chapter 7, as you may have assumed based on our scripture reading a moment ago. And we've already spent the first four lessons in this series addressing that first group of exiles. So we're turning our attention to the second group of exiles. And today we're really going to focus on the leader of this second group. Because it's in Ezra chapter 7 that we're introduced to Ezra for the first time. Now, let's be honest. Ezra's not a biblical character that gets talked about much in the church. If you were to compile a list of biblical heroes, Ezra may not even make your top ten. Ezra's just not a guy we talk about very much. But Ezra's an important individual in the story of the Bible. Ezra has the most difficult rebuilding assignment of anybody, I believe. Because it's one thing to have to go back and build a massive temple— but it's quite another thing to have to go back and rebuild hearts and minds so that they're devoted to the Lord God. And that's the assignment that Ezra accepts. And that's the assignment that Ezra succeeds at. And I think the reason Ezra's success at rebuilding this community's commitment to the Lord has everything to do with himself with his commitments, with his character. And so Ezra, in my opinion, serves as a fantastic model for you and I. And that's why I'm actually calling this lesson Model Home. Now, you know what a model home is, or at least most of you know what a model home is. A model home is a display version of the type of home you can obtain in a particular subdivision or, or by a particular builder. And one website said that a a model home's primary purpose is to demonstrate how a house will look, feel, flow, and function so that a prospective buyer will want to purchase it. When I read that, it made me think of Ezra. I think Ezra fulfills a similar function for us as a model home does for a home buyer. Ezra serves as a reminder of who we ought to be. Of what God is doing for us and through us. Ezra is a fantastic model, and I want to spend the rest of our time together explaining why. Here we are, Ezra chapter 7, and what we're going to receive in the first several verses of this chapter is just a description of Ezra, and it's in that description that we find out a lot of things about him that have application for you and I. So let's start with this, You'll notice, first and foremost, as you read Ezra chapter 7, that we have Ezra's genealogy. And as we look at it, I'm reminded that Ezra's succession was through Aaron. Now, I know that doesn't mean much to you right now, but let's talk about it for a moment. In verses 1 through 5 of Ezra chapter 7, we're given his genealogy. And honestly, I wanted that to be part of the scripture reading, but then I saw that Jack was reading. And if I made him do all those names, well, the security team would probably rough me up a little bit. So... I minimize it, and he's giving me the uh, approval that that is, yes, what would happen. So if you look there at Ezra chapter 7 and look at verses 1 through 5, you have all these names, all these people through whom Ezra descended. Now, there's a couple of names I want to highlight in there. First off, you'll come to the name Hilkiah at the end of the first verse. Hilkiah was the high priest during the time of one king named Josiah. If you go back and read the stories that Hilkiah appears in, he's the priest that discovered the law, the book of the law. During the reign of Josiah, during the reign of this guy who was eight years old when he became king, Hilkiah's high priest, he discovers the book of the law, he shares it with Josiah, and the next thing you have is the major reform in the the southern kingdom of Judah, a reform that brought the people back to God. But you have this association between Hilkiah, a high priest who emphasized the law of God in such a way that the people returned to the Lord. And he is an ancestor of Ezra. And then there in verse 2, you can see mention of Zadok. Zadok was high priest during the reign of King David. He's the high priest who anointed Solomon as David's successor. And he's the high priest that was around during the construction of the first temple. Here is Ezra returning to or, or going to Jerusalem after this temple has been rebuilt. And he's an ancestor guy who was high priest when the first temple was constructed in the first place. And then, of course, if you keep reading through this series of names, you'll get to the very end and mention of Aaron, the very first high priest, the brother of Moses, the one whose staff was eventually placed inside the Ark of the Covenant, the guy who started this whole system of priesthood in the first place. And you can't be a high priest unless you come from Aaron's lineage. Hopefully you've picked up on the theme here that Ezra sent of high priests. Ezra has this amazing genealogy, this amazing lineage. His ancestry traces through 16 generations. Now there are more generations than that between him and Aaron. Some are skipped. You have grandfathers and then grandsons mentioned, and even larger gaps than that, because that's just how biblical genealogies work. But the significance of this genealogy is that it showed that Ezra had authority. He had authority from his Jewish ancestry, as one author said, as part of the high priestly family. And this is important, because something we didn't talk about back in Ezra chapter 2, there was the group of guys who came over from from Babylon they claimed they were descendants of Levi they claimed they were descendants of Aaron that they were part of the priesthood but they couldn't produce any proof they couldn't produce a family tree a certificate or any other form of documentation that showed that they were in fact part of the priesthood You can read about this in Ezra chapter 2, particularly in verses 61 through 63. And because they could not prove their ancestry, they were excluded, we're told in the text, they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. See, unlike them, Ezra had the proper credentials through his ancestry. And I want you to think about this. Why does that matter? You might look at your family tree today and go, <laughs> I don't want to share this with anybody. I don't want anybody to know that this is my family tree. I don't want people to know my genealogy. And we're not a culture that cares nearly as much about genealogical records as the, as the, uh, the Jewish people did. It mattered to them because it affected land inheritance. It affected roles within the community. It affected your um, social standing even. So what's the application here for us? Why does Ezra's succession through Aaron matter to you and I? It's because having the right family heritage does matter spiritually. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and verse 3 that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then he went on to explain in the following verses, particularly verse 5 and 6, that he was not talking about a physical rebirth Because he said, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This means in order for you or I or or anybody else to be a part of God's kingdom, we have to have the right lineage, spiritually speaking. And, And how do you obtain the genealogy that leads to God's kingdom. Well, listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. See, based on Paul's words, every believer has the same family tree once they put on Christ. So our spiritual ancestry, our spiritual lineage, our spiritual genealogy matters in the sense that everyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven must be a child of God. And the only way to become a child of God is to put on Christ in baptism. So when I read Ezra's genealogy, when I read that he's got this beautiful succession from Aaron to himself, it reminds me that who I am a child of matters spiritually. Ezra is our model because Ezra reminds us that spiritually speaking, the family into which we are born matters. And the one who is our father matters. And so the question you should pose to yourself today and that I should pose to myself today is, am I born of the water and spirit? Can I claim an identity as a child of God? Because Ezra's succession through Aaron reminds us of the importance of that spiritual family that we're called to be a part of. And so we learn about Ezra's succession here first few verses, but we also learn about his profession. Ezra's profession was that of a priest and a scribe. We've already alluded to his priesthood factor here by looking at his genealogy and seeing his connection to these other priests that preceded him. But if you look at Ezra chapter 7, and verse 6, Ezra is identified as a s- scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And if you skip down a little bit further and you go down to verse 11 of Ezra chapter 7, he is described there as the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. So Ezra is associated with two unique professions. He's identified as a priest and he's identified as a scribe. The priestly occupation should come as no surprise because of his genealogy. But think about the job of a priest. There are many things you can say about what a priest does. But one thing that's worth mentioning is that the priest's job is to mediate people's relationship with God by making sacrifices on their behalf, by pronouncing blessings in his name, by assessing and treating impurity. The priest's role is that of a mediator. He is a go-between between God and man in the sense that he's the one who oversees the sacrifices that are made for atonement. He's the one that communicates what must be done to be forgiven. Priest is an important job. And then there's that scribe role that Ezra is given That assignment as a scribe that's mentioned here. A scribe originally referred to an official position within the government that amounted to a secretary of state type role. But beginning with Ezra, he changed it. Beginning with Ezra, one author said, it evolved into a class of specialists who were teachers of the law. Scholars who studied, interpreted, and copied the scriptures. In other words, scribes became the expert, the educators of God's word. They became the ones you would go to to learn. So Ezra is not only in this role in which he's there to help you write your relationship with God, but also in a role where he's there, there to help you understand God's will. Priest. And scribe. But what does this have to do with you and I? You know, when we arrive in the New Testament, the responsibility of these two roles are passed on to you and I as disciples. Think about priest for a moment. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter referred to Christians as a royal priesthood. And in Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 and 6, John said that Jesus made us, a a reference to the church collectively, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. That may be uncomfortable to think of. That you are given the assignment of a priest— But think about it. As Christ's tentatives today, aren't we in the mediation business? Aren't we trying to connect people with the one who atoned for their sins through his sacrifice so that their relationship with God can be righted? Jesus is the great, the, 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 the primary, the ultimate mediator. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5 says that, but as his disciples, it's our responsibility to continue this work by connecting people with him who offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, as Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 says. We're in the mediation business, and as such, we do function in this role as priests who are trying to help people write their relationships with God. And though we're not called scribes in the New Testament, we are assigned the responsibility of teaching. When you put on Christ, you accepted the Great Commission, which, according to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, states that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And notice verse 20, teaching them, to observe all that I have commanded you. We often focus on verse 19, the going and the baptizing, but that teaching them all things can easily get overlooked, but that is part of the assignment, isn't it? That's part of the responsibility, and that's ultimately what a scribe did from Ezra onward. It's easy for us to assume that the responsibility of teaching falls on the elders because they're the ones who must be able to teach. They're the ones who are shepherding the flock. Or it's easy for us to assume that the responsibility of teaching falls on the ministers because like Timothy and Titus, the ministers have the responsibility to preach the word, to be ready to teach and rebuke and exhort. Or it's easy for us to think that the responsibility of teaching falls on those who have received the gift of teaching as it is referenced In Romans chapter 12, verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, and Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. But when you look at the Great Commission, that's not written to the elders or the shepherds. That's not written to the ministers or the evangelists. That's not written to those who have a special gift. That's written to everyone who proclaims Christ as king and who wears the name of a disciple. And it calls for all of us to teach. So when you look at the New Testament, we're the priests and we're the scribes of the modern day. And Ezra is reminding us of our responsibility. He doesn't just remind us that access to the kingdom of God is through a particular rebirth and through a particular identity as a child of God. He reminds us That entrance into the kingdom of God comes with some important and unavoidable responsibilities. And as I look at the description of Ezra in Ezra chapter 7, I also find out that Ezra has a special connection. If you look at verse 6, we're told that King Artaxerxes granted Ezra all that he had asked. Ezra's got this special connection with the king. And then if you go to Ezra chapter 7 and look at verse 14 and 15, you'll see that King Artaxerxes sent Ezra to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem and to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel. Ezra's commissioned by the king of Persia. Ezra. Ezra is networked in the most spectacular way possible at this time. Ezra's got the backing of the most powerful man in the world at this time. Now why does this matter? It matters because it means Ezra has nothing to fear. Do you remember the hardships faced by that first group that returned from Babylon? We talked about them some in our previous lessons. Back in Ezra chapter 4 and verse 4, we're told that the people of the land discouraged them and made them afraid to build. And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. By the end of Ezra chapter 4, we find out that this opposition against them was so intense that they stopped building the temple for 16 years. Then in Ezra chapter 5, after the work on the temple resumed, the provincial governor investigated the legitimacy of their project. But thanks to God's providence, that investigation did not negatively impact their production. And the temple was finally rebuilt. In other words, when you look at the first group that returned from exile, what you see is a group who was constantly encountering hardships, who was constantly encountering obstacles, who was constantly encountering opposition. They faced such difficult opposition that they were afraid at times to do the very thing God had ordered them to do. Now here's Ezra. Ezra entering the same territory this same area that has been full of opposition, Ezra is now entering, but he can enter it confidently because he's backed by the king. He's got authorization. He's got permission. He's got protection because in his hands is a letter from the king. So Ezra's mission was backed by the king of Persia. That gave him confidence. But more importantly, Ezra's mission was backed by the king of kings. Three times in Ezra chapter 7, references made to the hand of God being with Ezra. After we're introduced to Ezra, in chapter 7 and verse 6, we're told that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Then in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 9, after detailing the date of departure from Babylon and the date of arrival in Jerusalem, the text implies that the the journey was a success because the good hand of Ezra's God was on him. And then if you look at the end of the chapter, chapter 7 verse 26, Ezra acknowledged the blessings he's experienced in this endeavor and attributed them to the fact that the hand of the Lord my God was on me. Ezra knew he had the backing of the king of Persia, but more than that, Ezra knew he had the backing of the king of kings. And Ezra can enter Jerusalem confidently because he's holding a piece of paper from the king of Persia that gives him the right to do this. But Ezra can also enter Jerusalem confidently because he has the word of God in his hand. The king of Persia referenced this fact in Ezra chapter 7 and verse 14 when he commissioned Ezra and he said, You are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Here's my point. Ezra has nothing to fear. Nothing at all to fear. In fact, you're going to find out when you get over to Ezra chapter 8 that he's going to deny a military escort from the king of Persia because he's got such confidence that God's going to protect him that he makes the journey without any extra help. Ezra has nothing to fear, not only because he's got the authorization of the king of Persia, but more importantly, because he knows God is with him. Ezra's got nothing to fear. And like Ezra, we have nothing to fear. Because the King of Kings, as Jesus is called in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14 and chapter 19 and verse 16, has promised to always be with us. In fact, that's how he closed out the Great Commission. And lo, I will be with you always to the end of the earth. And he's promised to never forsake us. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, or Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, I should say. And he makes such promises to us. The king of kings makes such promises to us. Not because we are his subjects, not because we are his employees, not because we are his representatives, but because we are his friends. Think about that for a moment. John chapter 15, verse 14 and 15, Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from you. My father, I have made known to you. Do you grasp how beautiful it is that the king of kings looked at you and said, You're my friend. You're not just my subject. You're not just my employee. You're not my servant. You're not my representative. You're more than all of that. You're my friend. How special is it to us when someone recognizes us as more than an acquaintance, more than a coworker, more than a peer, more than a neighbor, we're more than all that because we are intimately their friend. And that's what God has called us. See, Ezra is our model because Ezra reminds us that we have nothing to fear because we are connected to, endorsed by, and under the protection of the King of Kings. So why do we go on living in this life afraid of what's around the next turn? you continue on looking at Ezra, one last thing you find out about him, and I think it's the biggest. It has to do with his devotion, because what we find out is that Ezra's devotion was to God's Word. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. That phrase, set his heart to, implies, as one commentator said, a deliberate positioning of the heart. The NIV summarizes this phrase by simply saying, Ezra had devoted himself to. Ezra had devoted himself to studying, to doing, and to teaching the law of the Lord. That devotion to the Word of God immediately reminds me of what is said about, Ezra, uh, about the infant church in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Immediately after the conversion of 3,000 on the day of Pentecost, we're given a description of eight different practices or activities to which the early church devoted themselves. And the very first one that's mentioned is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now you have to remember that the infant church did not have the Bible as we know it. They had access to the Old Testament, but relied upon the apostles' teachings to supplement their scriptures with information pertaining to the new new covenant. Thus, by saying that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, Luke is ultimately telling us that they were devoted to God's word. Now think about that. Ezra's going to Jerusalem and the one key quality that stands out about him is he's devoted to the Word of God. At the birth of the church, the first thing we're told about the church is that it's devoted to the Word of God. So the question you and I have to ask ourselves is, is are we devoted to the Word of God? And I know that you know what devotion means. I know that. On Saturday, this coming Saturday, you're going to display that or you're going to hate that. One or the other. College football season kicks off on Saturday, and there is nothing that demonstrates devotion like college football. Am I right? Can I get an amen? The fact that you just amen that proved my point. Now, here's the thing. There are many of you out there who could care less about college football. College football doesn't matter to you. But you still see the devotion. See, college football fans are wholeheartedly devoted to their teams. Devotion for them means they may may never miss a game, either in person or on television or on radio. It means that their houses and wardrobe are inundated in their team's colors and logos, even if it's that ugly orange color that David Evans tends to wear. It means they've memorized their team's fight songs, slogans, and cheers. I hate to even have the, role, the word roll in my sermon because I'm scared something's going to come after that. It means they know the players and coaches, the statistics, the schedules, the history, the traditions. They know all this stuff. It means they are engaged with, invested in, and dedicated to their team to the point that they are annoying when they win and they are intolerable when they lose. And you don't even have to be the person that I'm describing. You can be the person who never watches a game, the person who doesn't have a favorite team, the person who doesn't even know anything about football, and you can still look at those people and you can pick up on that devotion. Because you can't walk by Daryl Smith without him saying something about the dogs. It doesn't matter. You're still going to experience that devotion coming from somebody else. But here's the challenge. Are you as devoted to the Word of God as you are to that team? When it comes to God's Word, has it reached that level of devotion in your life? Do you seize every opportunity to engage it? Do you have it readily available, whether in a physical format or a digital format, just so you can consult it at a moment's notice? Have you memorized significant or useful portions of it for your own benefit Are you so familiar with it that you know its structure, its authors, its genres, its major stories, its major characters? Can you not go a day without engaging it? See, if I took the same standards of your college football fandom and applied them to the Word of God, would you meet it? Would you be able to say I'm as devoted to the Word of God as I am to Georgia or Georgia Tech or Alabama or Auburn or Ohio State? How they crept in here, I don't know. And Tennessee, it doesn't matter. I had to throw Ohio State out there because Isaac's with us today. If we applied your standard of devotion to your college football team or the standard of devotion you unfortunately have to witness in a college football team, if we applied it to the Word of God, would it be the same? And if not, don't you think there might be a problem? Because Ezra's devoted to the Word of God, and the infant church was devoted to the Word of God. And I think that that we need to be reminded, through Ezra's story, that there are some things worth being devoted to more than others. And that's why Ezra is our model. Because Ezra reminds us that nothing should receive our attention, our allegiance, our devotion like the Word of God, since it alone is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, as 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 says. So we look at four things from the life of Ezra today as we're introduced to this remarkable character in Scripture. The question you have to ask yourself at this point is, am I modeling my life after Ezra? Have I become a child of God and secured that family lineage that leads into his kingdom? Am I fulfilling my responsibility as a child of God? As one who mediates and one who teaches? Am I living in fear or do I have the confidence as the King of Kings is always with me? Am I devoted to the Word of God like Ezra's devoted to the Word of God? This morning we've considered the fact that Ezra is a model for us. But the real reason I, the real question is, am I a good model for others? Does my life demonstrate that I've been born again? Am I fulfilling my responsibilities as one who shares the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ? Am I living fearlessly because of who I'm connected to? Am I devoted to the life-saving words of the Bible? And as you ponder those questions today, I want to share with you a poem that I could not find the author of. It's a poem called My Influence. My life shall touch a dozen lives before this day is done. Leave countless marks of good or ill, ere sets the evening sun. This, the wish I always wish, the prayer I always pray. Lord, may my life help others' li- other lives. It touches by the way. I think Ezra's life does that for us. The only question is, does our lives do that for others? This morning... We extend the Lord's invitation so that if you have not become His child, if you have not been born again, born of water and the Spirit, that you might be able to make that decision today and have your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. But we also extend the invitation that if you fail to fulfill your responsibilities as a child of God, if you're living a life of fear instead of faith, if you're not devoted to the things you need to be devoted to, then we invite you to come and seek out our help, our prayers, and the Lord's forgiveness. If you have any need to respond to the invitation this morning, we invite you